I'm excited uh, to jump back into the Gospel of John. So if you have a Bible, you can open with me to John chapter 16. Over the last uh, few weeks, we've been dialed in on the Upper Room Discourse, if you're just jumping in. And this has been a conversation between Jesus and his disciples. And the focus really has been on our preparation for the gospel mission. So that's what Jesus has been up to in these chapters. He's been preparing his disciples and us with them for the purpose of courageously declaring the good news of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's all been about equipping us for discipleship and evangelism. That's what Jesus is talking about in the upper room. And tonight he is going to continue on that path, but this time he is going to shift his attention to the idea of sorrow. And to be more specific, he's going to talk about how we as believers should understand loss. Now, I will never forget uh, a moment that I shared with my family when I was in sixth grade. So this was a long time ago. Uh, But at that time, we had just moved from Boise, Idaho to Kansas City. And if you've ever uh, moved before, then you kind of know this feeling. It feels like everything had changed. So you had new friends. uh, You had a new church, new school, kind of new everything. It felt like nothing was the same as it used to be. And in those moments, what becomes important really quick is the anchor points. That's sort of like hold your identity together. And so for me, when I was in sixth grade, those were my family. I had three, three anchor points. It was my family, it was our minivan, and then it was our dog, Riley. So those were kind of the three things that held me together as a sixth grader. And uh, then came the week where I lost two of the three. I still have my family. (laughs) Uh, What happened is that my parents were headed out of town for like a pastoral conference. My dad's a senior pastor. And so they were going to leave. And we were super excited as kids because we were all going to go stay at one of our friends' house, one of the new families we had just met. Uh, But then at the very beginning of the week, the car ended up dying. So our minivan died, and that was really tough. Like tougher than you would think it is because I like grew up in that van. So anyone have like a minivan like that in your family? You're like, this thing has been there the entire time. It knows me more than like anyone else. So the van dies, and we're all sad about that. But then it went from bad to worse because on the day we were all about to go, We had to leave our dog behind, and we left the dog with an older couple from our new church. And so I go with my mom that morning, and, you know, our dog's name was Riley, and we're playing together. All right, bye, Riley. I'm in sixth grade. We get in the car, and I kid you not, like maybe 20 minutes later, my mom gets a phone call. And she picks it up, and all I hear is crying on the other side. And so come to find out, uh, in those 20 minutes... That had been enough time for them to leave the door cracked. Riley had gone out, and our dog of nine years got hit by a car and passed away. And as bad as I felt, I cannot imagine being the older couple. (laughs) Like, my dad's the new senior pastor. He just killed his dog. (laughs) Like, whoo. So you want to talk about devastating. My whole family was wrecked. Like, as soon as my mom gets off the phone, she cancels the entire trip with dad. She's like, we're not going. Uh, then we canceled us going over to our friend's house and we all, I remember this is one of my like core memories. We are all huddled on a couch in our living room, my entire family. So there's, I have four siblings. We're all there like bear hugging, crying as dad buries the dog in the backyard. And so we just had no idea how to process what was going on. And so 
we skipped school the next day. We were planning to do that, but we skipped it. And my parents, like the best thing they could come up with is they took us all to IHOP. And so like, how, how do you deal with loss? We're at IHOP and we're all talking about our memories with the dog and we're just stuffing our faces with whipped cream and syrup. And that was the best we could do. And the reason I share that little story with you is because while it might not look the same, my guess is we have all experienced moments like that. Uh, Moments where we lose something or someone that we care about and it's hard to process what's going on. And so maybe for you, uh, that's happening right now. It could be a relationship that just ended. You don't know what to do about it. Maybe it's a business opportunity or a job that was going to put you in the place of life where you thought you were going to succeed, but now that's gone. And so it could really be anything. All you know is that something you cared about is gone, and it's hard to understand why. And so we live in a world that is filled with losses that are difficult to process. And tonight, as we look at John chapter 16, Jesus is going to remind his disciples of this reality. But then he's going to teach them how to make sense of their sorrow. So if you have a Bible, John chapter 16, I'm going to be reading verses 16 through 24, and you can follow along with me. Starting in verse 16, here's what Jesus says. He says, a little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this he says to us, a little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father... So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. And Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the father in my name, he will give it to you. Up until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. All right, we'll stop there. Uh, Before we dive into what Jesus has to say here, it's really important that you understand the literary context and everything that has kind of been leading up to this point in the Gospel of John. Because it sets up the main idea that Jesus is talking about. Up to this point, Jesus has been with his disciples for three years. And throughout those three years, he has at various, pla- uh, various places hinted at or even outright predicted his own death. And I'm not going to outline every moment where this happens, but I want to give you a few examples. So starting with John chapter 3, verse 13, Jesus says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is talking about his death and resurrection. Then in John chapter 12, so moving forward, in verse 32, Jesus says, and when I am lifted up from the earth, 
I will draw all people to myself. And listen to John's comment. He's going to add a comment here and it says, Jesus said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. In being lifted up, Jesus was pointing to his death on a cross where he would be lifted up and crucified. And then in John chapter 13, verse 31, he makes it even more clear. Because after Judas leaves the supper table, Jesus says to his disciples, now is the son of man glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. In John chapter 13, the key there is he says, yet a little while I am with you. It's actually the exact same phrase that he opens our passage with. And that's important because it should clue us into the fact that in our passage on sorrow, Jesus is focused on his death and resurrection. He is describing what is about to happen to the disciples and why they are about to experience sorrow. It's because they're about to lose what is most precious to them. And the more valuable the object you lose is, the greater the sorrow you will feel when you lose it. All right, think about that. The more valuable the object, the greater sorrow you feel after losing it. So imagine losing Jesus Christ. I mean, could there be anything in life more precious to lose than Jesus? I mean, he is God, and to the disciples, he was their mentor, and he was their close friend. But now he's saying, in a little while, I'm going away, and you will see me no longer. And what's almost funny about this is that the disciples still have no idea what he's talking about. And you see this in verse 18. Uh, They're talking to one another, and they're saying, what does he mean by a little while? You know, hey, Peter, what's he mean? Did you get the answer to that question on the quiz? Peter's like, no, did you? No. None of them know what's going on. Jesus has told them throughout the gospel of John, here's this event. It's coming. It's going to happen. But then as he's pressing them on it, they have no clue what he is talking about. I mean, if you're Jesus, it's like, how many times do I have to tell you guys this before you finally put it together? I'm going to die. It's like, how many times do we have to teach you this lesson, old man? Oh, come on. Brock is the only one who laughed at that. I mean, that's the general idea of how this is playing out right now with the disciples and Jesus. But notice that Jesus doesn't get mad at them. Instead, he knows what they wanted to ask him, and he's patient with them. And honestly, I think that's because the reaction of the disciples here in this passage is the right one. This is a just total side note, but I love what they say. They say, we don't know what he means. And I think that shows us the right posture of heart that we should have towards the Bible. I mean, there's been so many times where I've talked to someone or I've kind of just watched and they're bluffing their way through what a verse means. And they have no idea. (laughs) It's like, if you don't know, it's okay to say you don't know. The disciples are like, Jesus, we don't get it. And then they ask him for help. And so if you're ever like in a Bible study or in life group and you don't know, just say that. I honestly don't know what this means. Can you help me? I mean, I'm one of the pastors here and I have to do that sometimes. I'm like, JT, what does this mean? And then he opens the, th- the thesaurus. He's like, let me give you the answer. We need that sometimes. And so I think there is something to learn from the disciples. Anyways, side point, coming back to the text, 
Jesus knows the disciples are confused about what he has just said. So being the good and perfect teacher that he is, he starts to explain it to them. And that is what you find in verse 20 of our passage. Here's what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. What's Jesus getting at here? He's saying, look, I'm going to be crucified soon. And when that happens, you are going to be devastated and the world is going to celebrate it. That's how it's going to go down. I die, you weep, the world rejoices in that order. But notice he doesn't stop there. (laughs) And praise God for that because the second half of verse 20 is where the hope of this passage comes from. After saying that, he goes on and he says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Sorrow into joy. This is awesome news for the disciples and I think it's awesome news for us. Jesus makes sense of sorrows by coming back. If you're wondering, how do I make sense of the the suffering in my life? Well, start there. Jesus makes sense of sorrows by coming back. And because he comes back, he can go on to say truthfully to the disciples in verse 22, I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take that joy away from you. This is pretty radical. Jesus is saying, I can give you joy that no one can ever take from you. And can you imagine what the disciples thought when they heard Jesus say this? Do you think they believed it? I mean, we're not really told by the text whether or not they figured this one out, but based on their track record, I think the answer is no. I think Jesus explains it a second time and they still don't get it. But do you think they thought back to this conversation during the three days where Jesus was buried? Do you think this passage gave them hope, this conversation with Jesus? In a little while you won't see me, but a little while after you will. Do you think they believed the promise? Again, the interesting thing is that the Bible doesn't tell us, at least not explicitly. But what we do know is that all of the disciples came to believe in this promise after Jesus rose from the grave. (laughs) I mean, at that point it clicks. And they realize, oh, this is what he was talking about. Jesus walks through the door. There it is. Oh, he's coming back. That was the whole point. That was the promise that he was making to us. And you see the main difference between the disciples and us, and this is where it's kind of easy for us to kind of high horse it and look back and be like, why didn't they get it? The main difference is we live on the other side of the cross. They didn't have the guarantee of this promise, or at least it was not finished. So they had a promise, but they hadn't gotten the finished work of that promise yet. And because of that, it was harder for them to believe in the joy that Jesus had promised to them. They didn't know if it was going to happen or not. And I think that is something that we can relate to. Because even though Jesus has come back, we still live with a promise apart from the finished work. Only now it has to do with Jesus's second coming. And we live with a promise. We will see Jesus again. But are we there yet? No. And there is a tension there. And because of that, we have to endure our own little while, as Jesus would call it. 
And during that time, we have to put our faith in the promise that God will see us once again in the flesh. And the reason why I'm stressing this at the very beginning is because the application of this sermon is not that since Jesus died, life is sunshine and rainbows. That is not the takeaway here. You shouldn't expect life to be painless just because Jesus comes back in John chapter 20. That's not what it means. Instead, what this passage teaches us is that we can make sense of our sorrows by looking to the sorrows of our Savior. That's the connection I see between the disciples and us. Both of us are living in a time where we've received the promise of seeing Jesus, but we're still waiting for it to happen. We're still waiting for it to happen. And in the in-between, what we get to experience is sorrows. And that's the reality of our situation. It's going to be hard. There are going to be losses. Dogs will die. Minivans will bite the dust. Relationships will end. Friendships will end. And people you love will leave. But in the middle of all of that... And no matter how bad it gets, no matter how many tears you shed, the promise that you can hold on to is that at the end of the day, if you've believed in Jesus, you will see him again. And no one can take that joy away from us because Jesus suffered the cross for us. I mean, the apostle Paul wanted to remind the church of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. I love this verse. Describing Christians, he says, we are treated as imposters and yet are true. As unknown and yet well-known. As dying and behold, we live as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So that is our identity as Christians. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Because we know that no matter what happens, we have Christ. No matter what, we get to have Jesus. So we look at life through the lens of the cross. We look at life differently than everyone else. And we have hope that at the end of the day, Jesus sets things right. That is the main point of this passage. And from it, I want to use the rest of our time to draw out three applications for how we should process our own sorrow and suffering. So I wanted to kind of give you guys the framework of this passage as we began. Jesus is talking about his death and resurrection and what it means. Well, here's what it means. You have hope at the very end that's guaranteed. Okay, how does that play out in our lives? How do we make sense of sorrows? Well, point number one, you start with an honest assessment. Start with an honest assessment. Uh, typically, one of the first things people do when they feel sorrow is that they try to suppress it. Right? Like, a, like tobacco in a good pipe. They try and tamp it down, their sorrows. That was my illustration. And I've seen this time and time again, though, on a more serious note. A loved one passes away. The job falls apart. And what do they do? Rather than admit how hard it is, they try to convince themselves and everyone around them that they're okay. And there are several ways that they try to do this. And so I want to highlight these because it might apply to you. Here's the first one. People just start working more. A lot of the times, if you're in a season of suffering, you'll start to think to yourself, if I can just keep busy and focus on what's in front of me, then I won't even notice that my whole life is falling apart now. And that's the thought process for them. They're always doing something to distract themselves. But if being a workaholic doesn't, you know, pan out and they're still starting to struggle, the second option that they'll t turn to is they'll become an alcoholic. 
And so the second way you can deal with suppressing, you know, suffering is rather than working a ton and distracting yourself there, you'll start to numb the pain with substance abuse. I mean, drugs, alcohol, even food and entertainment. All of those can be abused as a coping method for sorrow. And the thought process here is that you're trying to drown out the pain and numb it. And I just want to note, this is something that people in this room struggle with. As a pastor at this church, I have talked to many people in our congregation and people in this room who are currently or have in the past struggled with substance abuse. And you want to know the common denominator? All of them were dealing with grief of some sort. All of them had some kind of sorrow in their hearts that they were trying to bury. And that's how they coped with it. But maybe you're here and you're not a workaholic. You're not an alcoholic. So you think, clean. Well, think again. (laughs) Because you have option three, which is just outright denial. Even if there are no outward signs, you can still suppress your sorrow. And you do it simply by lying to yourself, guys. You just lie to yourself. I'm okay, you know. I'm fine. I'm going to smile on the outside. But here's the problem with that. You're lying. You're breaking the ninth commandment. You're bearing false testimony to yourself and to other people. And that's what you're doing with all three of these options. So you know what that means. It's sin. When you try to deal with sorrow by suppressing it, you are in sin. And the reason I say that is because the first step for you to get healthy, to have hope, to have joy, is to repent. It is to turn away and say, God, forgive me that I've done this. Until you do that, there's no hope. This one is personal to me. I've talked about this before, but I remember being a sophomore in college when one of my friends from high school was shot and killed. Um, It was the first time I'd ever lost somebody who was close to me in age and it was unexpected. And the way that I responded when I found out, I got a phone call and a letter from his mom, was that for two weeks, all I did was I worked out, I went to work, and then I didn't talk to a single person about it. And there was just like gray. That was my life for two weeks. It was just gray. And the first thing I had to do is I had to repent because I was lying to myself and I was lying to other people. But doing that is what allowed me to start working my heart towards hope and joy for the first time. I had to give myself an honest assessment. In John chapter 16, Jesus clearly acknowledges the reality of suffering I love this. He doesn't sugarcoat anything to his disciples. Have you noticed that? Jesus is not a sugarcoater, if that's a word. Every time he's like, hey, guess what? Here's the reality. You're going to follow me. You're going to suffer. It's going to be terrible. But guess what? I'm at the end. And that's how he tells it to them. It's very clear. It's an honest assessment of sorrow. And that's where you need to start in your own life, guys. (laughs) If I could just encourage you. This is where it gets really practical, but you need to say what your sorrows are out loud to people. I mean, if you're struggling with loss, don't pretend it's not there. Don't try to just cope with it in all these various ways. Instead, share it with a friend or a mentor that you trust. And if you don't know who to do that with, start with one of our leaders in 20s. They're a great option. In fact, leaders, if you're here, LIT or senior leaders, could you raise your hand real quick for me? Okay, look around. You guys put your hands down. Thank you. <laughs> if you're here and you don't know who to share suffering with, you're like, okay, I'm, 
It's hard to trust people. Those are trustworthy people who just raise their hands. They know their Bibles, and they would love nothing more than to sit down with you, grab coffee, and hear about your life, and then walk through trials and suffering with you. But that's where it starts. Like, as I was thinking, how do I preach this to you guys and talk about sorrow? I'm like, this is a heavy burden to go into. I think it starts by opening up and actually saying, all right, God, this actually is terrible, and it's really hard. That's the first thing we have to do if we're gonna make sense of sorrows. You start with an honest assessment. But then after that, you have to take the next step. And this is crucial because it's not just enough to tell everyone how bad your problems are. In fact, you can go to a lot of places outside the church and do that. You just tell everyone, this all sucks. And you can do that, but then it will just leave you in despair. So you have to take this next step and it's critical. And that's that you have to set your eyes on future hope. Set your eyes on future hope. Uh, One of my favorite parts of this passage that I've avoided so far is the illustration that Jesus uses with his disciples in verse 21. It's where Jesus talks about a woman in labor to describe what our own sorrow is like. And this illustration changed for me drastically after talking to my sister about her C-section for the first time. This like radically changed everything. Um, If you've ever heard about what goes on in a C-section, then you know how terrible this is. Like they literally, she's telling me this, I get so squeamish with blood and I, I was writing this, typing it. I was typing out what I was gonna write. And I was like, <laughs> like, I was getting a little nauseous. But they literally like, you're having a baby, they cut a hole in you and then they pull the baby out. I was, Kelsey's telling me this and I'm freaking out. I'm like, I, I'm not ready for anything like that. Thank you, Lord, I'm not, not a woman. <laughs> I, and I, it, that is not an indictment against women. That is like, go women because I don't have the guts. <laughs> I don't. But you want to know what's even crazier than that? It's the fact that Kelsey still wants to have more kids. I'm honest. She told me that. The craziest pain and agony you could ever imagine. And she's like, let's do it again. And guys, what gives you the strength to be able to say that? What gives you the strength to look at agony and suffering and say, let's do it again? It's knowing what comes out on the other side. In verse 21, Jesus says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. You wanna know one of the amazing things about how God created people? It's that in the female body, he made it so that after birth, there are all these like hormones that release and they wash away the pain from the childbirth. I thought this was so cool. Obviously, this doesn't take away all the pain that has been experienced. But for the most part, as soon as you've given birth, the worst of it's over. And the mother gets to enjoy the new life that she has brought into the world. And that's why when I talk to my sister these days, she never brings up her birth. She never brings up like the the C-section part. We don't talk about that, thankfully. (laughs) But you want to know what she does talk about? Her son. Every time. She's just glowing and talking about Robinson. And she's just filled with joy. And in the same way, Jesus says that for us, no matter how painful life gets, as soon as we see him again, our pain and our sorrow will be wiped away. And we won't talk about these things anymore. I mean, we're gonna be captivated by the beauty of our savior, Jesus Christ. And we're gonna have joy in him. So regardless of what you're going through tonight, you need to set your eyes on the future hope that we have in Jesus Christ. 
That's how you process sorrow in a healthy way. You acknowledge very honestly that what you're going through is hard and you share that with someone. But then as soon as you do that, you set your eyes on Jesus and you fix them there. Again and again and again. Every morning you get up, you fix your eyes on the gospel and you remind yourself about the hope that you have in Jesus. And guys, this is how Paul did it. In Romans 8, 18, he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That man suffered more than most of us ever will. And you wanna know what he said? He said, it's not worth comparing to what I have in Jesus. You wanna know how Paul can say that? It's because his view of God's glory was colossal. It was massive and it dwarfed any kind of sorrow that this world could take to him. I pray that is true for all of us. That we have such a big view of God's glory that everything else around us just fades away. When God's glory is big in your life, sorrow becomes rather small. And if that's the case, then how do we make God's glory bigger? Well, the way you do that is by setting your eyes on this. You want to set your eyes on future hope. You have to look at this book. You got to get into the gospel. And so if you're here tonight and you're discouraged or sorrowful, the best thing you can do is go back to the word and let it remind you of how the story ends. Leaders, if you're counseling someone who is in sorrow, the best thing that you can do is get out of the way and point them to this book so that they're reminded of how the story ends. That's what each of us needs. We need to be told again and again that Jesus will wipe away every tear. We need to be told again that one day death will be no more. We need to be told again that there is a better kingdom. We need to be told again that we will be in that kingdom through Christ and we will glorify him forever and we will have joy. That's what you do when you're in sorrow. You keep reminding yourselves, you keep your eyes set on this book and then you don't take them off. And as you do that, finally the last thing you need to do is seek God's help in prayer. Seek God's help in prayer. That's my last point. And it's the last point because that's the last point Jesus makes in this passage. If you look at uh, verse 23, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. It's a fitting way to end this section. And for us, it's a fitting response to our sorrow. It's a fitting response for how we should process grief and sorrow. You talk with someone else and you say, this is tough. I'm really struggling. Then after you do that, if they're a good counselor, they will direct you back to this book. You get your eyes on the future hope that you have. And then you need to go talk to God about it. And that's what prayer is. And it says not only that you're just dialoguing, it says you're asking him for stuff. You want to know what you're asking him in this context here? You're asking him to bring you joy. Did I lose my mic? It's all right, I got a loud voice. When you're coming to God, you're seeking help in prayer. You're asking him, God, I am in pain. The water is over me. I need you to help. That's what this means. And when we come to that, we need to remember who he is. Who are we asking for help? It's God. I mean, he is the wonderful counselor and almighty God. Can he not help us when we're suffering? 
I mean, is he not able to identify with our weaknesses? Can he not give you a peace which surpasses all understanding? This is God. So why don't you go to him and ask? That's the promise here. And I love it. It's like, I have to be reminded of this all the time. Friends, God is bigger than any sorrow. And he calls each of us to ask him for help in the name of his son. And as we ask in accordance with his will, the promise is that we will receive our joy and it will be full in him. That's the good news that God offers to us, each and every one of us. And for many of us in this room, we have become partakers and receivers of that joy. Amen? (laughs) But equally so, there are going to be people in this room who have not received this good news. I mean, even if you've been in the church your whole life, that does not guarantee that you get to be with God in heaven at the end of the story. In fact, Jesus talked a lot about this. He said there were going to be many who thought they were getting in only to be denied at the door. And it was John Bunyan who said there is a way to hell even from the gates of heaven. And the reason I say that is because if you have not repented of your sins and believed in Jesus, then hell is the judgment that waits you at the end of your life. And the truth of the matter is that no matter how many good works or how many good deeds you bring to the table, none of that is enough to get you in the door. All of us are sinners and deserve the judgment of God. But the free gift of grace is that Jesus Christ suffers the punishment in our place as our substitute. He dies on the cross. Three days later, he raises from the dead. He doesn't stay in the grave. And he does that conquering sin and death so that whoever would believe in him would receive eternal life. Amen. He conquered sin and death. You can either deny that or believe it, but you do have to choose. And I say that out of love. I don't say that because I want to be harsh. I want to come up here and pound this thing. But I hope you hear my heart. I say it because someday... I was praying about this this week. I long for a day where all of us would be side by side, worshiping God in eternity. And I would get to look to my left. I would get to look to my right. And I would get to sing all the more joyfully because of the life that we shared here as we worship our King forevermore. And the reality of that that burdens me is that it's likely that's not going to happen with everyone here. And some of you will reject Jesus Christ. And you will choose not to follow him. And if that is where you are at this point tonight, I would beg you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. He extends love to you and it's free. And if you turn to him and repent literally and say, I'm wrong and you're God and I'm not, this is that he will be able to save you to the uttermost, no matter how wicked your sin is. And that is why I can get up and preach every week, knowing, knowing that we're all broken, but choosing anyways to come up here and say something because I want to be in eternity with you. I want to worship God. And I want that for you, not only because it will be joy in the next life, but because it will be joy in this life. And heaven works backwards. 
it works its way into this life because every pain, every sorrow becomes part of the story where Jesus gets more glory and we get to see him be more sufficient. And so for those of us that have believed in Jesus, we need to be reminded of that every day. (laughs) And we ought to rejoice. We are free. Think about that. We are free. We are free from sin. We are free from the power of shame. And we are free from the power of uh, sorrow as well. And so we get to sing every Thursday. We get to come together and we get to worship Christ because of what he has done. And then we get to go and proclaim it to the world. That is a motivation for gospel ministry right there. (laughs) Why should I go tell other people about Jesus? Because he saved me from my sin and from the sorrow. And I want him to do that for other people. So let that be true of us. And let's end with a word of prayer.